Hey, I want to do an episode today that is a what I guess I would call a feel-good episode. I want to talk about things that are less controversial than critical race theory and intersectionality. Man, people were so opinionated about that. And it's crazy because it's people I love on both sides of the argument. I had people emailing saying, hey, you know, racism is such a problem and you guys are ignoring that or you don't you don't see it. And like, Man, I'm not ignoring that. That's not that's not what we intended. And then others saying, Hey, good job. You know, we really appreciate that you spoke out on this issue of critical race theory. The bottom line, I guess if I could, you know, I was kind of the facilitator or the, I wasn't driving those conversations in those last three episodes. Um, but man, I was learning a lot. And those guys that were driving it, Zach Carter and Zach, maybe I trust those guys so much. And, and, uh, so, and Zach Mabry's married to a minority woman, you know, like, um, it, it, that's one of the things that's so tough about this is it's gotten so complicated that it, I don't even know. It used to be that sort of racism just meant skin color, but now it, I don't know. It, it seems to mean more than that. I saw, I saw an Antifa rally where this white girl looked like she was maybe in her early twenties is just screaming at this, an African-American police officer. He's saying, you're racist. Uh, or no, she's screaming at a white police officer. And then this African-American guy comes over and says, hey, man, he's married to a black woman. This is exact words. She's, he's married to a black woman, and they have three children together. He's not racist. And she's like, that doesn't matter. Just because you're married to a black woman doesn't mean you're not racist. And it's like, man, what? I don't even know. I've had people call me racist and you know, my two youngest children are African-Americans. So it's so a lot of it, it's hard to make sense of it because people are so fired up about it. And, but then they can't articulate themselves. Well, like what, what are you saying? And people say, Oh, you know, racism is systemic. We've got a systemic problem. Well, then people can't even agree on what systemic means. So let me tell a story that I thought was very helpful and I hope it'll help, um, non-minority people, sort of hear and understand and receive it. And then I want to, then I want to get right off this subject and get into, I want to tell a bit about our adoption story. I think it will be helpful and encouraging to people. Um, that'll be the feel good part of the show. Welcome to no sanity required from the ministry of snowbird wilderness outfitters, a podcast about the Bible culture and stories from around the globe. I was talking to a pastor friend who is a pastor of a church that's that's pretty ethnically diverse. It's racially diverse. And right after the George George Floyd killing back in uh, in May, I was talking to this guy saying, "Man, what as ministry leaders, what do we do? You know, I, so many people are speaking out, and I don't. I, I want to be slow to speak. Um, and some people say you shouldn't be slow to speak. This needs to be stopped. And I'm like, eh, I think that's oversimplifying it because people are speaking out they're burning city blocks over this so to speak out and just say hey racism's bad you're just like stating the obvious and maybe adding to the noise well what can we do to affect change in people's hearts when we believe the gospel is what changes people in discipleship teaching them the ways of jesus that's what's going to bring about the most change and the most lasting change and so just trying to trying to be slow to speak and so i had a lot of a lot of pressure to speak to this issue on the podcast. And so we finally got around to it, but we did not get around to it in May or June. And we just want to be slow to speak. And so I've spoken with a lot of African-American friends, minority friends, co-laborers in ministry. And I was having a conversation with this pastor and he said, 
he, he summed it up real good this way when it comes to systemic, the idea of systemic. He said there's a guy in his church who's retired military, um, has got a couple of master's degrees that, that the Navy provided, you know, provided the funds or financing for part of his uh, service was that he was able to get edu- higher education. And, and he said when he was a teenager, he grew up on the streets of Miami in a really rough part of town, and nobody had a daddy. Everybody's living with their mama or their, you know, their auntie or their grandmama or whatever. And they, they grew up, you know, kind of caught up in crime and, um, just the way of life was, it was like a, being in a pit and you can't dig your way out kind of thing. And so this guy had gotten into some trouble with two or three of his buddies, uh, running the streets Said I think they had committed a robbery and maybe hurt somebody. So they go before the judge. This guy is able to, um, he, he joins the Navy. The judge gives him an opportunity to go into the military service. And I don't know if they still do this, but that used to be kind of common in the courts where like a young man that's in trouble, 17, 18, 19 years old, they give you an out of going in the military. And, and I, like I said, I don't know if they still do that, but I know they used to do that. I've talked to several people that that, that happened to, and, and it's given them a, a chance to get some discipline in their life, a fresh start and get out of their situation, start over. So this guy, um, this guy was uh, was was raised on those hard streets, man, and he's standing in front of this judge. Judge says, you join the military, you don't have to go to prison, and uh, you know I'll commute your sentence or whatever it was. How I don't remember the exactly how he worded it. But anyway, guy goes in the Navy, ends up spending 22 years in the Navy, gets a, a four-year degree, then he gets two master's degrees. Now he's been out of the Navy probably eight years. He's raised two wonderful, beautiful girls who are now young women and an awesome wife and family and just – you know, life is life is good for him. He loves the Lord. He's super involved in this church. And those buddies of his that were in that same deal, they didn't, they didn't, I don't remember, I think they didn't get the same offer. They The court was like they had different cases, different judges, whatever it was. Anyway, I don't remember those details. Bottom line, the three other guys stayed there in that hood. You know, they stayed in that really difficult place. And their lives just sort of perpetuated that same sort of cycle that um, that they had happened, you know, to their dads before them and their dads before them. And so those guys, you know, ended up in and out of prison. And I think one of them's dead now. And you know, drugs and crime and the systems just kind of stacked against them. And what he said was, he said when that judge offered him a military option. It was like if you could imagine being in the hood and a door opens that's through that door is the way out, but it opens for like five seconds and you have to make a split decision to step through that door. He stepped through it. The door closed. He was in the Navy and he was out and not that he didn't have problems and issues and struggles, but he now had a path and a track and guidance um, where those other guys didn't step through the door. The door was such a brief, and he said, he said that for me, talking about me, Brody Holloway, growing up in rural white America, that that door was held open for me a lot longer. And I thought, man, that's a good way of putting it. You know, like from a, from a societal standpoint, the door's open to me. Now, that, in some ways, that could be oversimplifying it because I think like in my town, we're a post-industry town. Three plants closed in the late '90s, and now we're we're a general generation later. These kids are being raised. You know, it's it's more. It's not race. It's class. I mean, they're all of them live their whole lives on government assistance, and 
everything from healthcare to food to, you know, everything is provided by the government. They live, a lot of them live with their grandmother, their grandmother or in foster care, whatever. A lot of the kids that we work with locally. And so it's sim, it's a similar desperation within this situation, but I thought it was good. He said, he said that for me, the door was held open a lot longer. And I know I can, I can say that for my kids, my three white American kids and my two African American kids that, you know, five children, three are white, they're biological, two are adopted, they're African American. And for all five of my kids, I'm going to stand and hold the door open for them to have opportunities. Now I'm going to put responsibility on them, make them work hard and, and, uh, and really have to work to get themselves like nothing's for free other than the grace of God that brings salvation. But, you know, Bible also teaches if you want to eat, you got to work. And so, um, I want to hold that door open and, and try to help them get through it and help get them launched into the world, you know, and, um, and, and my oldest is already there. She's, she's there. My oldest is married and her and her husband are serving, getting ready to head back to East Africa where they'll be serving, uh, on the foreign mission field. And I'm really thankful for that. And then my second born is just on the verge. A lot of you guys know him. That's Tucker. And he's, he's right there making decisions and, what's next in life and he's taking starting to take you know the the strides that a man needs to take he's a man he's a young man he's not a boy and so pushing but holding the door open while pushing him through it you know that kind of thing where i thought that's a really good verbalization or word picture of a lot of kids and whether it's uh whether it's a uh like a class situation or a race situation or in places where the system is stacked against them and the door doesn't get held open. So that was a good way of putting it and helps me to see things through other people's eyes. Little's got that plaque in our bathroom that says, man, don't criticize somebody till you've walked a mile in their moccasins. You know, it's a native American proverb and I think, man, that's, that's so good to remind myself like to see the world through someone else's eyes is really good. That being said, the hope that we have for people is the gospel. And so, you know, I, I think we got to be careful using social, socially constructed, secular constructed tools to analyze and address situations that really are heart and gospel issues. So that's, that's what we're driving at. And I hope that, I hope that people will understand that at the end of the day, we want people to understand the love of God and to be changed by the power of the gospel and, People that are have been targeted and and the objects of racism and have been marginalized because of skin color or economic status that we want to be people and a church and a ministry that encourages and loves those people well and so we're all just trying to be more like Jesus and work hard to to honor and love him and show that love to other people so hope that um, hope that's a good not disclaimer or anything like that, but I just hope that adds some good insight to that three-part series we just did on critical race theory and intersectionality. And we could talk, uh, you know, we could talk more at, at length about it, but hope that that helps you. Um, now, I said it's going to be a feel-good story. I want to tell you a little bit more about Juju and Mo. I've referenced him throughout the last 60-something episodes from time to time. I had Mo on here. I had Juju on here. I had Mo on here a few times. Um, He's a piece of work, man. That kid is, I don't even know, <laughs> the other day. So some of the girls at camp had him do a TikTok video, and it's like three, it, it looks like 
three of him you know you've seen this and he's like doing a dance to the music that's playing on the video and it's a choreographed dance but it but it's like him in triple and so it looks like a, a triple shot of him three moses is jumping up and down on the screen you know doing this dance and i mean he's it's a good dance man he's riding step with the music and i don't know if he practiced it choreographed it whatever but I, he's showing it to me and i said man that's some good dance and he said actually that guy in the middle is the real me he's dead serious Actually, that guy in the middle is the real me. So I thought that was pretty funny. And uh, so I want to tell you a little bit about just just it's as we look during the month of November. And I recently spoke in an episode about adoption and fostering. I want to talk about uh, Moses and Juliet. So what we did was what you would call a private adoption uh, in, in the international um, like in in the international context. That's different than maybe a private adoption domestically. So. Like I've got a couple of, I got several adopted sisters and I can remember as a kid, my mom, like I remember my mom and stepdad working through, uh, the adoption of, of one of my sisters and it was privatized in the sense that there wasn't like an adoption agency. They weren't working directly with DSS and like a foster or that's department of social services and a foster to adopt type situation. It's just a personal private adoption. Well, what we did for years, Snowbird has had work going on in Uganda, and I read an article one time when we had about six Snowbird people working in Uganda. I read an article that said there's over 2 million orphans in Uganda, and a lot of that is connected to just general just you know, deconstruction of society, poverty, abandonment, but then there's a lot connected to uh, terrorism in the late 90s and early 2000s in northern Uganda. A lot of people were orphaned. A lot of boy, boys were swept up into child soldiering. A lot of girls were you know, trafficked and abused. And so with having snowbird people uh, working in that area, it's like, man, let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go try to do something about this. And so we got approved to do um, multiple adoptions. So so the process was we went to U.S., went to United States government. There's a process you go through, forms you fill out, just a bunch of hoops and red tape. And you get basically approved to do this international adoption. And then we went to Uganda. There was a little boy and a little girl that had been picked up by the police in a small village in, a, in the district of Namatumba. And uh, the people there are a small subgroup and not even a, I don't even think they're an actual people group. They're like a subgroup. So Uganda has multiple people groups. The biggest part of Uganda is the southern kingdom of Buganda. So that'd be called the Bugandan kingdom. The language that's the national language comes out of there. It's called Luganda. So Uganda is the country, and then Luganda is the national language. And then a lot of people speak English because it wasn't a British colony or, or British, however that worked, you know, during colonization. And so once they were kind of out from under British control, British Empire, uh, English became a, like the trade language. And so uh, these two kids were from Namatumba. They had no real identity. Um, the, the leaders and, and – uh, magistrate in that area knew them knew their family knew their great-grandmother who they were residing with their mother had died the, he had written a birth certificate i mean i'm sorry a death certificate on her so this great great-grandmother couldn't take care of them so they were picked up by police and moved about five hours away uh, to the capital city of kampala and put in a children's home and uh, we had hired an attorney to help us start to navigate what it would take to get these two kids. And um, 
and and that attorney did an incredible job at late part of 2013 she went she she got them birth certificates she went through the proper channels to make sure she did all of the backstory located the biological fathers neither of whom was involved in their lives lived in different areas both had multiple children with a couple different women and so it was not an option for them to take them uh got signed affidavits from them that they would have nothing to do with those kids had never had anything to do with them the biological mother had been raising them and she had died and so this attorney um got all the paperwork in order excuse me and got uh so we flew over she got a a court date we went before a superior court uh in uganda and the process was crazy because we it was a two-week process to get guardianship um through the ugandan courts so we got we we hire a ugandan attorney again now this is private so like if you adopt from somewhere say china you a lot of people adopt from china on the international adoption deal and if you adopt from china what happens is you've got there's a process you go through that's it's pretty cut and dry. It's pretty black and white. Like the the process is just uh, you just step through the hoops. But it's the two countries have an agreement, like a, a partnership, and so it's it's not a difficult process in terms of red tape. But, uh, I'm I'm trying to word this right. There's a lot involved in doing it, but you just got to do the work. The work's in front of you. You know what you got to do. Well, Uganda doesn't technically they don't do adoptions. So what we had to do is move there, hire this attorney, go to court. So I took a leave of absence in the uh, beginning of 2014. Our board of directors approved for me to leave indefinitely. We we're hoping to do this in about three months. It ended up taking close to six. Uh, we we flew. I flew the five of us, my wife and I, Little and I, and then Kilby, Tucker, and Laley, who were all younger then. Obviously, this is coming up on seven years ago so they were like 13 11 and 8 i think so we flew to uganda it's a crazy story we get a court date my attorney my ugandan attorney attorney calls me and says hey i got a court date for next monday how quick can you get here i was like we can be there uh thursday night late so in tebby international airport the five of us it's like a 30 hour trip to get there i got you know my three kids in tow little and i we get there uh, no place to go. I had, I had texted back and forth with a guy I'd never met who said he would send a buddy to pick us up at the airport. It's midnight when we get through customs. We're sitting on the curb in the middle of, you know, nowhere as far as we're concerned because we've flown in in the dark. I'd never been to Entebbe, so we're in Entebbe International Airport. This guy named Mohammed, who's been described as a tall, large-framed uh, Ugandan man who will be wearing a red shirt named Muhammad. He's a converted Muslim. He's going to come and he will have a vehicle and he will bring you to the house where this guy, this contact we had was staying and was going to rent us a room. So Muhammad's not there. We sit out on the, on the curb, you know, for, I don't know, an hour with all of our luggage. And I'm like, okay, we can give this thing an hour. If he didn't come, I want to find a, find a way to get to a, a local hotel and then we'll work on this tomorrow. Uh, Muhammad shows up, 
I remember it's funny. I sat behind him in his in his van, and I said, he said, he said, no, no, you you sit here. You sit in the front. You are my guest, you know. And I was like, man, I'm gonna sit behind you, and if you don't take me straight to Harriet's house, I'm gonna choke you with my belt. <laughs> so I was like, you're like freaked out, man. Where's this guy taking us? You know. But anyway, it ended up being the right guy, and he took us to, uh, and we we went to the house where we'd be staying for the next few months, and. So we're there. We go to court a few days later. We get Juliet and Moses. We get Juju and Mo, uh, get them into our care and start this long process of getting them uh, birth certificates and then Ugandan passports and medical screening and all, oh man, doctor's visits. They were both malnourished. And so Moses was actually in early stages of starvation. So we had to get, get them, you know, through a lot of medical treatment. And, uh, like that part was really hard. So we got them, uh, got them healthy, um, got them, you know, like cleansed and purged and dewormed and all that good stuff, parasites knocked out. And, um, so we were just, we we're just staying there, um, while we were going through this process, which took several months. We finally had their, uh, had their Ugandan passports, their medical clearances. So now the, the next step is to get approval to bring them home. So we go to the U.S. Embassy got to get approval to bring them home they won't clear them to go because they need the magistrate from their uh their district to sign off on it that guy wouldn't cooperate he told the great-grandmother that we were going to take your kids and sell them on the black market because you could sell the the organs of children in tanzania and make a lot of money and that's what we were going to do and the great-grandmother said well if they stay here they're going to die a slow starvation death so i'll take my chances these people seem pretty honest (laughs) just crazy the whole thing was crazy so um, we actually had to leave them with a friend and fly back to the state to meet with immigration attorneys who then took our case, got them approved to travel on green cards. We flew them home, um, in late May going into June of that year and got them home, then hired an American adoption attorney and started the process of adopting them here as immigrants. So here are these, these legal immigrants who are now in America and we're adopting them. So basically adopting twice. We adopted them once in Uganda, got here and adopted them again. Got it done, got got it all legal and done. They got birth certificates to say they're born right here in West North Carolina. It's really funny. Changed their names. A lot of you have heard the story. Moses' surname was Kalulu, which in the Lusogan tongue means bastard child. So it was it was imperative and important that we that we give him our name, which there's just all kinds of gospel application to that man, that God rescues us from the kingdom of darkness and brings us into the kingdom of his beloved son, makes us sons and daughters and gives us not only citizenship in the kingdom, but gives an inheritance that is with Christ. And so it's a beautiful picture of the gospel. It's been an incredible journey. I was in 2014, uh, got to baptize Juliet last year. She prayed to receive Christ, put her faith in Jesus. She's 11. Moses is almost eight. He'll be eight here in a week or two. And, uh, and God's doing great things. And, and, uh, it, it's, it's the most wonderful thing in terms of understanding the gospel and, and the reality of the gospel is hard work. It took a lot. You know, we've, we've reset our lives to, to raise them at a time when most of our friends and our peer group are becoming empty nesters, but it is a thousand times over worth it. And I love them so much. And I can't imagine life without them. And, so I would encourage you for you know to to get involved in fostering an adoption and and uh, you talk about we we started this off with some clarifying comments on racism and talk about helping people 
um, and, and, and breaking systems with the love of Jesus and the, and the kingdom mindset, fostering and adopting and investing in, you know, like I talked about a few episodes back, investing in, in young, young teens and, um, being involved through your church and local organizations that work with kids that are less fortunate. There's so much opportunity for us as believers to, to be the hands and feet of Jesus if we'll just do it. And uh, it, it's the most rewarding thing I can imagine. I cannot imagine life any other way. So get involved. Uh, give to adoptions. Right now there's a family at, at Red Oak and Snowbird, Rob Conti, Rob and Sarah Conti. They're in the process. They're raising money and trying to adopt we have very close and dear friends, uh, the Dagenharts that live out in uh, the Raleigh area that have adopted a couple of kids. My sister and brother-in-law, Zach, Zach and Rocky Mabry, Zach, who was just on the last three episodes, adopted. Sean and Bethany Clark adopted. Amy Rasmussen and Jen Forchetti Foster. Um, there's so many opportunities around you if you'll just look. We've got them all around us. And uh, um, just if we'll just be faithful there's something we can all do to be involved. And uh, so I hope, hope that story encourages you. So at 2.1 million orphans in northern Uganda, and two of them are off the list and living here, and that's a pretty cool and gratifying thing. I remember we had, I'd been in, in a lot of orphanages through the years. We work in Honduras with our team every year at an orphanage, and uh, we'd, I'd been to several in other places, Togo and um, – India. Um, I'd been in several orphanages and I remember um, coming home with Juju and Mo and thinking, man, this is a different level of peace and gratification knowing this is my son, this is my daughter. I, it, it, I can't explain it. Um, it's, it's a really beautiful picture of the love that God can give us for other people. So it's my son, it's my daughter. I got two boys and three girls and they're all very different, and uh, I love them all just the same equally. So um, hope hope this Thanksgiving week is good for you and you just enjoy the goodness of the Lord. On Thanksgiving morning, we're going to drop an episode, just some, some thoughts on why we can give thanks, what we should be thankful for, and the goodness of the Lord. And uh, it'll, be pro- it'll probably be short. I say that. I haven't recorded it yet. I'm a preacher, so preachers tend to get long-winded. <laughs> but I'm going to try to keep it brief and just give some Thanksgiving Day thoughts, and I hope you'll enjoy that. And I hope this has been an encouragement to you um, and and that you'll keep your eyes on Jesus and keep keep plowing forward for the sake of the gospel, and let's be a light in a dark world. Thanks for joining in. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to No Sanity Required. Please take a moment to subscribe and leave a rating. It really helps. Visit us at SWOutfitters.com to see all of our programming and resources. And we'll see you next week on No Sanity Required.